0: The Lord Jesus began his work of separation in his earthly ministry. And as people either repented and believed or hardened their hearts and turned away, there will be a gathering of his repentant people into his eternal home. And there will be a great judgment for all those who refuse to repent.
1: Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Uh, Today we're continuing a message we began last time. It's called An Unsettling Arrival. And Jonathan, I think sometimes we don't necessarily think of Jesus' work being one of separating. We think of maybe his work of being one of invitation, his work of being one of saying, hey, you can come to the Father and you do so through a relationship with me. So kind of fascinating to think of uh, part of his role to be one of separation.
0: It is, I think, surprising, at least on first hearing, and it will be surprising to to many of us, many listeners today, to think that Jesus does indeed engage in a work of separation. But when we look back at the story of Jesus in the Gospels, we do see that he challenges people to respond in repentance and faith to his message, but he makes it clear that a response is required, and so he always divides the crowd. That's always what happens. Some will respond in repentance and faith, and others will not, and there is a division. We, we see that in the Gospels, and I think we see it today as well.
1: I think you're right about that, and we're going to continue to see that today from the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 3, looking at the first 12 verses, as we continue our message called An Unsettling Arrival. Here is Jonathan.
0: When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, two of the major parties within Judaism at the time, when he saw them coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We don't know all the background here. We don't know what experience John has had of these two groups of people. But he evidently knows enough about them to suspect that their presence with him at the river that day was not a sign of true repentance, a true turning to the Lord, a true turning away from sin, a true submission to the king's rule. Certainly, Jesus will have some very strong words for some of these religious leaders later on in the gospel. Just listen to what he says uh, to them in chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, he says, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to all people as righteous as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Certainly it's not at all clear that these Pharisees and Sadducees have come to be baptized for repentance that day by John. They just came, verse 7, to the place where he was baptizing. They were probably just wanting to know what all the commotion was about and who it was that had drawn such a crowd and created such a stir. But in any case, John's challenge to them is very striking. He doesn't say to them that there's no hope for them. He doesn't write them off entirely, even though he calls them a brood of vipers. He simply says this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and that is a fascinating charge to give them. The language of repentance is very familiar to us in Christian circles. The central call of the gospel is to repent and believe. So repentance is a key part of our Christian vocabulary. But I fear that we often underestimate what is involved in true repentance. Very often, I think we can reduce the idea of repentance to the act of saying sorry and perhaps saying it with a degree of sincerity, saying sorry and really meaning it at least for a time. We imagine that all will be well with us and the Lord because we felt genuinely sorry for a moment or for a day or for even a week, and we prayed a very heartfelt prayer but John insists that true repentance is more than this. It's not just a flush of embarrassment or a pang of regret. True repentance, verse 8, will produce fruit that is in keeping with that repentance. Repentance leads to change. Repentance bears fruit. So, if I repent of a particular pattern of thought and behavior That repentance will necessarily show itself through real change, not through sinless perfection, but through real change in that area. If there is no change, never any change, no development, we must assume there has been no repentance leading up to Christmas, I was beginning to kind of feel the lack of exercise in my life. I had done a bit of jogging in the nicer weather in our neighborhood and really enjoyed that. But once it got a little bit icy and cold, I used the bad weather as a bit of an excuse to kind of cut back on the running. But by mid-December or so, I decided that things really needed to change. I was missing the running. Something had to happen. And when I saw an opportunity before Christmas to get hold of a treadmill nice and cheaply, I jumped at the opportunity, thinking, in the winter months here in Ottawa, that's just going to make all the difference. And, you know, it felt really good to do that. I thought, I've, I've been wrong in my attitude to fitness here, but it's all going to change now. There is a revolution going on in the uh, Griffiths household. No looking back, nothing's ever going to be the same again. Initially, the treadmill sat in the back of the car for a couple of days. You know, the boxes, those things are heavy. Um, And I just needed to work up some energy to haul it into the house. But eventually, you know, I did manage to unload it, and I got it down to the basement. It then remained, you know, unpacked for a few days. I knew the assembly, that was going to take some time, and I was a bit busy. I would get to it later. But, you know, I was still feeling pretty good about things at that point. The revolution, it was in process. It's going to take time, but it's happening. No more, Mr. Lazy. No, sir. Uh Uh-uh. There is now a treadmill in our house. (laughs) Eventually, I took the step of taking the treadmill out of the box and began the slow process of assembly. Now, I'm going to cut a long story short here. We've owned the treadmill for a number of weeks now, but at the present time, I can count the number of times I've gone jogging on the treadmill on one hand. Indeed, I think on one finger. (laughs) So far, it has been all talk, no action. And you might well question quite legitimately whether I have changed in my attitude at all. I might claim to have changed, but there is precious little fruit thus far. John insists, verse 8, that true repentance must bear fruit. True repentance will be matched by evidence of a changed life. That was John's message, but he evidently sensed that his words and his warnings were falling on deaf ears. He sensed that this was all water off a duck's back for the Pharisees and the Sadducees before him, and he thinks he knows why. He knows where their line of thought is going. John, whether you're right or you're wrong about us, about our repentance, you are forgetting one thing that is really very important. You are forgetting that we've got something going for us that is kind of our trump card here. We are part of the right nation, John. We are safe because we belong to Israel. But you see, John the Baptist won't accept that. He won't have it, verse 9. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It was evidently a temptation for the Pharisees and Sadducees to think that their need to repent and the need to show fruit in keeping with their repentance, well, it was diminished because of their national heritage. They were born into Abraham's line. They were children of promise and all the rest. And because of that, well, God wouldn't fuss too much about how they live they were kind of safe, whatever happened. But throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God has always required His people to turn from sin if they're to enjoy His salvation and His blessing. Nowhere was there an offer of cheap grace, a promise of full forgiveness and blessing. Whatever you do, however you respond to God's
1: Word… Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth. Now, we have to pause the message right here, but we'll get back to this look at Matthew chapter 3 in just a moment. hope you will stay with us. By the way, if you ever join us late, have to leave early, or want to go back and listen to a message again, you can always do that by coming to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. There you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. Now, while we do get to listen for free, there actually is a cost to bringing Jonathan's teaching to you each and every day, on the radio and online. And as you give a gift of support to make it possible, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called How the Church Can Change Your Life. It's written by one of Jonathan's friends, Pastor Josh Moody. And in this book, he tackles 10 of the most common questions about church and actually takes a look at why we should even go to church at all. Again, the book is called How Church Can Change Your Life, and we'd love to send you a copy as our way of saying thanks for your support. You can give online right now at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. All right, back to the message. Here is Jonathan.
0: I guess there may be some here who are from a Jewish background, a descendant of Abraham, and so the particular warning here may have a direct relevance to you and a particular resonance. But many of us, I guess most of us here, won't be from that background. And we could imagine that because we're not from that background, the warning of these verses doesn't apply to us. But we need to see the heart attitude that is being addressed in these verses. The heart attitude that John is addressing is an attitude of entitlement and complacency, an attitude which, in turn, leads to a false sense of spiritual security. And I fear that you and I could so easily fall into that way of thinking. I'm okay because I, uh, I grew up in a Christian family, you see. I was dedicated as a baby, baptized as a teenager. I'm okay because I've been coming to church for years and years. I've been on a short-term mission. I've served in leadership. I'm an elder a pastor, a missionary. You know, my position, it's pretty solid before the Lord. I'm kind of part of His inner circle. I'm part of the evangelical elite. It's easy for us to think like that. It's easy to be self-deceived. I think that's especially true in a well-established church culture like our own. If we've been around long enough or our family has been around long enough We begin to feel like we're kind of part of the furniture, almost secure by default, secure by association. But verse 10 is really pretty strong. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The picture here is of an orchard keeper walking through his rows of fruit trees, looking for signs of health and life, and picking out the trees that are simply not producing. They need to be cleared and the ground needs to be made available for fruit-bearing trees. There's no room for sentimentality here. Dead trees are cut down and tossed into the fire. Every tree, Israelite or not, evangelical aristocracy or not, long-standing church member or not, noted leader or not, pillar of the community or not, every tree that does not produce good fruit in keeping with repentance that does not show evidence of repentance, John says, will be thrown into the fire. These are sobering words, and I want to make sure that we don't skim over them this morning. They're especially sobering words because they are spoken to religious people, people perhaps not unlike us. John isn't speaking to the pagans out there. He's not speaking to the unbelieving secular world. He is speaking to people who worship the Lord of Israel. He's speaking to people who read their Bibles and know their Bibles. He's speaking to people who stand up for God's Word in the public square. He's speaking to people who look for the arrival of God's kingdom. And he is saying to them, to the religious people, that if they do not show fruit in their lives of repentance, they will face the judgment of God their ethnicity, their position, their familiarity with the truth. None of those things will save them if their repentance is not genuine. And friends, the very same warning must apply to me, and it must apply to you. It would be so easy for any one of us to think that because we're here in this building, a part of this service today, because we've got some Christian history, we've got some ancestry, we prayed a prayer when we were 5 or 15 or 25 or whenever it was, we're familiar with the truth. We're on the side of religion and not secularity. We're on the side of the Bible and not another religious tradition, that because of any one of those things, we're just going to be okay no matter what we do. But John the Baptist says that the Lord who is coming is concerned to see one thing and only one thing. He wants to see fruit in keeping with repentance. If we've said, I have repented of dishonesty, He wants to see a track record of change. If we said, I have repented of sexual immorality, he wants to see evidence of change. If we said we've repented of fits of rage and a lack of self-control, he wants to see evidence of development and growth. And if there's no evidence, well, that lack of evidence is proof to the Lord that whatever religious connections and pretensions we may have, we haven't repented. I never cease to be amazed by how deceptive my sinful heart can be. I wonder if you find that how easily I can deceive myself about my sin. It's amazing how easily we can justify our wrongdoing and how effectively we can convince ourselves that our sin is actually basically okay in the end. But these verses, friends, are a sobering wake-up call to each one of us, and they are a stark reminder that sin is actually not okay, and true repentance means change. It's a valuable reminder for all of us, but I guess there will be some here this morning who very urgently need to hear the warning of these verses. In a crowd this size, it seems almost inevitable that there will be some who have somehow convinced themselves that God is willing to tolerate their sin and won't call you to repent. I can't possibly know all your stories in a group like this, but maybe that is precisely what is going on in your heart and your mind and your life just now. Maybe there's a pattern of ongoing dishonesty or of greed or of abuse, a pattern of sexual immorality or of unfaithfulness to your spouse, whatever it is, and maybe somehow you've just convinced yourself because you prayed a prayer when you were 15 or 25, because you go to church, because you give, because you serve because you grew up in a Christian family, somehow you've managed to convince yourself that God's going to tolerate your sin and He won't require you to repent. If that's where you are this morning, and I expect there could be a number here in that kind of a place, let me say to you as clearly as I know how, our passage makes it so clear, it's not okay and God won't tolerate sin without repentance. It's an uncomfortable truth, but verse 10 is so clear. The ax is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. As we hear this warning, we need to remember the bigger picture here. John's purpose is not to condemn these religious hypocrites. He actually hasn't written them off. He speaks strong words to them as a warning, but his purpose, verse 8, is that repentance would be a reality in their lives. And here's why. John the Herald is announcing the coming of the Lord, and the coming of the Lord really is very good news. The Lord has come to save His people. He has come to deal with the problem of their sin and to provide a means of forgiveness. In fact, Matthew introduces Jesus to us as the one man, the one human being who has no need ever to repent because he's done nothing wrong. As we saw last week, if you were with us, the Lord Jesus has entered into the story of God's people Israel to live out that story in perfect faithfulness where his people failed to do that. He is the faithful son, the sinless son, And in our passage next week, in verse 17, we'll hear the Father say to Jesus, "'This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased.'" But Jesus, this faithful and this pleasing Son, in a few short years will go to a Roman cross to bear the penalty for His people's wrongdoing and to secure their forgiveness. John's point here is not that there is no hope for the sinner there is great hope in Jesus. There is full salvation. But his point is simply this. The salvation made available through Jesus is only for those who will repent. And friends, if we imagine that we will receive the Lord's salvation without turning from sin, John warns us we need to think again. We must think again, he tells us, because the Lord Jesus will one day bring about a great separation. A day is coming when He will permanently sift the repentant and the unrepentant, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his weed into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The gift of the Spirit mentioned here is the great gift given at Pentecost to all believers in Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells all true believers and brings about that changed life, that fruit of repentance that John's been talking about. It's not actually something we can produce on our own. God produces it in us by His Spirit the Spirit's going to enable the life change that's required. But as Jesus fills truly repentant people with His Spirit, He will at the same time bring about a work of judgment on those who will not repent. Fire is mentioned three times in our passage, verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12. And on each occasion, I think, it speaks of the reality of judgment for those who do not truly repent. And John is promising that the Lord who is coming to save and to give the life of His Spirit to His true people, to those who genuinely repent, this coming Lord will also bring judgment to His enemies. Verse 12 drives home this idea of separation using another image from the world of agriculture. The scene of judgment is pictured as a threshing floor by an ancient field. The grain is gathered, the farmer takes the winnowing fork and throws it up in the air in the breeze. The chaff blows away, and the grain again falls to the ground to be gathered. The Lord Jesus began His work of separation in His earthly ministry as He proclaimed the message of the kingdom, and as people either repented and believed or hardened their hearts and turned away. He continues that same work of separation as His word goes out even today And the Bible makes it clear that a day is coming when He will complete that work of separation. There will be a gathering of His people, His repentant people, into His eternal home. And there will be, the Bible tells us, a great judgment for all those who refuse to repent. So, as we finish this morning, let me ask you, as I ask myself, have you truly repented? Have you turned from rebellion? And is there fruit in your life to demonstrate that turning? The Lord Jesus has come to save those who truly repent. He is the faithful son. He has done all that's needed to achieve our salvation. There is full and free forgiveness in the Lord Jesus, but He does require us to turn from sin. He does require us to repent. The Bible's realistic about the fact we're not going to be sin-free this side of heaven. The standard is not achieving sinless perfection, but there needs to be fruit, evidence of the Spirit's work, evidence of true repentance. I wonder if there's evidence of repentance. I wonder if there's fruit in your life and in my life.
1: Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, a message called An Unsettling Arrival, part of our larger series, Promise Fulfilled. And if you ever miss a broadcast in the series, you can always come and listen online at EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. It means we depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. But as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called How Church Can Change Your Life. It's written by Josh Moody. And uh, Jonathan, what what is this book about? Well, it's really
0: asking the question, you know, why should I be bothered with church? Why should I go to church? Should I go at all? And that's a really important question to be grappling with. It's important, I think, for Christians who have maybe spent some time away from the local church during COVID. It's important for those who are perhaps listening to the program, intrigued by Christian things, but have never been part of church before. And Josh is tackling that important issue in a very accessible way, and I think it'll be a valuable read for all our listeners.
1: Well, we want to send you a copy of this book, How Church Can Change Your Life, written by Josh Moody. It's our thank you as you give a financial gift of any amount this month. You can give online by coming to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.